Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. Winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they've taken their expertise on the road as the full-time family, where they inspire, coach, and lead people to create their unique, deliberate family life using a simplified three-step process. Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show. Join us for twice-weekly episodes. Each week, Nat and Sarah will teach us how to deliberately create results in all areas of life using their unique three-step process. Not only that, they'll also sit down with some of their favorite high achievers who have manifested what most merely dream about. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with the best-selling author of What If? From Death to Destiny. The thing that makes this book title so staggering is that it's her autobiography, describing her unprecedented release of 452 pounds, which for all my Aussies friends is 205 kilos over the last five years. Like this is like, yeah, she's giving me, she's pumping it. Look, after major medical issues, she was put in palliative care and left to die. She felt that her gravestone would probably end up reading death by potato chips as quote, the pits of my hell had been opened and I proceeded to eat my way in. Hailing from Kentucky, USA, she has been featured in Time Magazine for her incredible body transformation. But she describes in her book that even after three years into her nutritional cleansing program, where she had released 400 pounds, 182 kilos, she was still uninspired because she hadn't yet changed her thinking and had yet to accept for the past 38 years of her life, she'd been playing a big old pretending act. Educated in clinical psychology and behavioral analysis, I am so curious about a woman with so much knowledge who could still literally eat herself to death from the pain of her past. How does someone go from obese to athlete? There is no one more elegant to describe it to us as the poetic Kenya Lachelle Elliott, now transitioned into being a lifestyle and wellness coach, focusing on generational obesity and the effects it has on minority communities. So Kenya, thank you for sharing not only your story of becoming half the woman you used to be, but mostly what you had to rise to in order to be sitting here today. So like true gratitude, we had our gratitude before we started the recording, but I just, I, I want to say it live now. So thank you so much for taking You're welcome. Time. You're welcome, beautiful. You're so welcome. So you ready to jump right in? Let's do it. Yeah. Look, I was, you have a big story, right? So I really thought, yeah. how do you even like, we could go and let's start at the beginning, but here's the thing. 
when did you know you were morbidly obese? I mean, this is a societal term. So really when you're in that space, like how far does it get before you literally say, um, something's not working here. Like things are getting bad. Um, honestly, I think because I was, you know what? I, it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't apply to me. So that's <laughs> the basic not. way, the, the basic way to answer that question was, even though I would read my doctor's statement saying I was morbidly obese when I was working and everything. Um, and when I would go to the doctor when I was trying to get pregnant. One of the reasons why I couldn't get pregnant was because I was morbidly obese. But in my mind, listen, you want to hear crazy theory? Yeah, I do. That the rule wouldn't apply the same to me because I was big boned. I wasn't fat. So <laughs> I would still have the same, you know, but really I was just fat with a term that my family had called me when I was when I started getting big after having a baby early, yeah, they called me like, oh, she's this big bone. But I'm like, no, I was just fat. <laughs> I was a fat little kid after having a baby early. So, wow. and it never went away. It never went away. Um, so I think I realized I was morbidly obese, maybe under, in an undertone, right. but I would just often eat that sensation away because it didn't apply to me because I was smart. I was active. I was educated. I was funny. People liked right. me. So those, that title didn't really apply to me. It applied to other people, right? You know, and even at a time, I can remember being pro-big. Like, you should be as big as you want to be. Like, no, you shouldn't. Your heart and lungs can't take that. Girl, what are you thinking? Like, you know, so it's just um, interesting how we can I, I would not even justify but how we can just simply lie to ourselves yep. about a reality that we are actively living in and then we think the harder we work the more we commit ourselves to it has the reality but no you're still just big like you know oh my gosh yeah. I'm so glad you're speaking from where you're speaking from I just did a course called money and you and one of the biggest lessons that was going on during the course was this idea of blame and justify and how it holds us trapped and you just said it it's like isn't it amazing how you couldn't have a baby it said because of your weight because you're obese and then next came the statement the justification and even you know even the whole I've had a baby young this is why and then your family backs it up and then your friends and next thing you know you're pro big right oh my gosh like that is yeah. And then pro big led to a lot of things being cut off for you. And so the thing I was kind of, look, I'm curious about a lot of things about your life, but I was wondering how you have quite a painful past. You had a baby very young. How do you experience having that baby? And I encourage you to pick up her book. What if, because you speak about losing that baby and how you do that in your teens and then go on to go to university, get educated. Like you just said, still keep the funny. How do you compartmentalize that part? And then when does it get too much and it all just comes caving in and clearly you didn't, you weren't able to ignore it in the end. Um, I, 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 like I said, I, I stayed busy. 
Um, I can remember after my daughter passed away, I just got really active. I went to live with my dad. <clears throat> I went to live with my dad, which I had met on my daughter's deathbed. So I went to live with him with a little, a little, for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and I just got busy. I got involved in things. I like stayed active because like, I felt like if my mind was idle, you know, I just never felt safe. And so to feel safe, I would just kind of maybe the best way to explain, it, I would just fill my mind with busyness. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to worry about safety right so at any age if your safety is not present you can't function right people don't realize when you're scared all the time you're living in this fear that's beyond um describable because it feels like you're in prison but you're free like imagine being in jail like a cell and you can see yourself in there and you're out walking around but your your insides are trapped in the cell like you know mm-hmm. and so um I think that I felt unfree. Yeah, okay. Um, a lot. Did you, were you aware of that at the time or only now? Like, because you studied, right? So you had this yeah. kind of awareness of psychology, but how did you, did you realize that you were running from your own head? When I was a little kid, I knew I was different. Um, I could empathize in a, like an adult way at like six. I could feel energy in a room and I would try to change that. You know, I would try to help and empower it. Like I wanted people to be in a state of happiness when I was little, you know. And over the years, I was always allowed to do that. And then that became my saving grace so that I could ignore the things that hurt more. But at night in the dark, right? When the lights are off, I suffered horribly. Um, I was always having to read and reread and relearn because I was trying to train myself to keep that unhealthy person to bed. I could keep it asleep. Um, as I look back over my whole life, I feel like for 35 years, I lived in a constant state of emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And when it wasn't being done to me, I probably sought it out because I didn't know how else to feel. And I think a lot of times people don't understand that that shows up in eating as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can know that a certain food makes you not feel well. And after an emotional day, you'll choose to eat that because it creates an even higher level of emotion. You get emotional excitement when you're eating and then pain, right? Because you get sick. And so it's a, it's a more intense level of tor- torture. It's the same as any other addiction in a very unique form. Um, and I did a lot of that, a lot of that in my life early on. When I was a little girl, I threw up as a very little girl. Um, not, and I can remember not being well as early as six, like trying to hang myself in a closet. Oh, so wow. I was, I always felt the energy in my space was always not good. I never felt, I saw things when I was a little girl that were not good. 
and I knew it, but every adult around me validated that behavior and made me feel not validated, right? Like, so imagine being small, young, and being told you can have a voice, but only if you are in agreement with the bad things that are happening. If you are not in agreement, not only do you not have a voice, but you're kicked out of the family. And so when you see that from your siblings be kicked out of our home for telling about being molested, early on, you carry that. So you learn to trust and are not trust. You know, you, you don't even want to invest energy. So I would only have a few friends my whole life. I never had a boyfriend when I was younger because I wouldn't want to invest the energy into what equated to me another relationship that would ultimately equate pain. Wow, I'm, I'm really getting that having a young daughter that who's four, this idea of she's learning so much by what she's soaking up from her environment. Yeah. And like almost learning about boundaries, not so much by what she's, what's being said, but by what's being done around done. her. And then you, what I, what I got from your story and thank you for being so beautiful and sharing it is that it's like trust in self was being eroded like one thing at a time. Like you knew as a little girl, you knew what felt good and what didn't. And then slowly you're getting all this, this mixed messages. And then, I mean, can you even remember a time where you had dreams for your life? Did you ever like have a vision? Oh yeah. I was, Oh my gosh. I, the personality that I have today, I had it when I was a little kid. I always wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. I was going to save people. I was going to serve them when they were around me. They were going to feel great. That was always my heart. Like, I, I always wanted to do, I always wanted to play the games that meant you could take care of people. I always wanted to do the, the toys that required like two people or service. Like I didn't want, I didn't, but like I said, it was always only like one or two friends. I, I can literally name my closest friends throughout all the eras of my life because there weren't that many. Wow. Right. And so, um, as a little girl trying to understand an environment that adults around you don't understand is it it's it's like a mind fuck excuse my language uh, like have you ever heard the concept of gaslighting uh give me more okay so gaslighting is imagine someone tell like you know without a shadow of a doubt if someone touches you that that's wrong yeah. Right. But they convince you because of who they are in your life and how they did it, that it's different because they did it. Mm. But you know, it's not right. But they actually convince you but be, that, that you're wrong because they did it because you made them do it. Like, right. it's almost, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that the sky is blue, but they literally convince you that it's gray. Got it. To the point where it's making you doubt who you are. Because you know the sky isn't gray. In essence, right? Because it's sure. blue. Sure. And so I, my perpetrator was very good at that. So I had watched my sister be put out of our home for telling on my mom's boyfriend before the man that molested me. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So when he, the first time he ever touched me, he made me do a pinky swear. And he made me pinky swear to be his friend, not to not tell him any bad things. And then he manipulated me of how friends protect each other, right? Are you following me? I am. He it's told me subtle. Mm -hmm. that friends let friends do anything and they don't tell anybody. Because if they do, their mom will give them away and they'll die. So I'm like nine and a half, ten. I have not really any friends because we moved so much and my mom was a single mom. We never could afford to stay anywhere long. So every year we moved another place. I never really kept friends because I never really lived anywhere long enough to keep good, like long-term friends. And then my sisters didn't want to hang with me because they said I was a snitch and I was because I always wanted people to get along. So I thought if I told what other people said about people, that that would bring them together and make them want to resolve it. Like, I always wanted to solution everything because I thought, oh, if we just solution it, then people won't be like mean, like they won't do mean things, right? Mm -hmm. But then that turned into my older sister who had been molested, kind of manipulating that idea in my head, right? A little bit making me think that then that means I'm not a good person if I tell anybody. That if I tell, then that means I gotta get beat up because that's the only way I'm gonna learn. So I would get beat up for telling. So I have my mom telling me I need to tell everything. I have my stepdad telling me that friends don't tell nothing to no one. Well, if you love your mom, your mom is your friend too, right? Mm. Already income growing. Then I have a sibling who cares for me when my mom goes to work because my mom is actually a single mom who tells me a different, totally different thing. So I'm already literally, I have no identity. I don't know who I'm supposed to look up to or follow. So I can create my own sense of self, right? Wow, and you I really, wow, that's, that's really ahead. confusing. <laughs> yeah, and it hurts. Because when people say, well, who are you like? I have no idea. And are you currently, we'll talk about currently a bit more later, but are you currently building that up right now of who are you today? Oh my gosh, yes. That's, it, these are like, more five year ago things but sure. to to be honest it's like for me I always look back you know when you asked me to do this con I read the questions I wanted to be sure that I painted the picture of what it looked like upstairs because outside of me that's not what you saw so the confusion that you feel hearing me trying to explain this little girl who had this baby, this baby that died. And everyone who told me to trust them later turned around and hurt me, even my own mom. And so you at one point have to make two decisions. You go left or you go right. And that's true. And I grabbed onto learning to school. I see. Going to school. So that's how I am have a lot of the knowledge and that like I went to school straight through and you know most people go to high school and they take a break or they go to college and then they get a job and then get a master's so I did I literally didn't stop I, I went non-stop um, because that was my saving grace if I could just keep learning and if I could learn why pedophiles do what they do then it'll help me understand how to help myself and that's how I started wanting to be a doctor. Got it. 
So thank you for describing that because I really get a sense of how there's like a certainty that we come in with, like a knowing that's, we don't, it's not knowledge-based. It's just a knowing. And then I can feel this slight, the, not slight, the extreme erosion of that, you know, being bolstered this way and that way. And oh man, by other people that are clearly in pain themselves. And then the interesting thing is you grab onto education. It's like, and you don't stop. You, you, you think if I could just know enough and with everything you knew, because this is why I find your story, it, the real impact is that you grabbed onto education. You filled your head with knowledge. However, you're on your deathbed after all this knowledge, you gain 389 pounds, like that's 177 kilos in 10 months. What? Is that even possible? You've given up on life. Like what allowed you to even consider a friend who says, why don't you try nutritional cleansing? For me, I don't get it. Like, how do you, how have you given up? Like to me, yeah, how, how does that happen? <laughs> um, I think that you gain 389 pounds, just like a drug addict smokes up a hundred thousand dollars in a month. Got it. It's nonstop. You often hear people say I was in my addiction. I was in my addiction, meaning I was surviving in it. That's the only way I could survive the pain was to consistently be in that, in that state, in that space. And because I hadn't been medically bound there, it literally gave, um, it was a manifestation of this. Remember that person I talked to you about that was lurking in the back? Yes. She had an opportunity to grow because my guard was down. I couldn't stay. What I tell you, I used to do busy in my head because I found my freedom in busyness, going, going, going. People used to ask me if I was manic depressive and I used to say, no, I'm trying to fight the demons that are lurking in the dark. And that's true because I would get so depressed of the things that from my past, this loneliness, I have no family, I have no children of my own biological living children. So it's just all of these I don't have, mm. which all stem from something someone took from me when I was 12. So for me, now I see in constant willingness to grow and understand that I don't have control over people's behavior, that I control the solutions that I seek and how I respond. And so I'm always just looking for the better yes to grow because that's how we get over that much pain. Um, we get over that much pain being, being okay, being messy and realizing that there will be times when that pain feels familiar again but food can never be your solution. Um, in my life, I never, I rarely ever, I won't say never, because maybe once in the last year, I had eaten for an emotional need. Mm. I will starve before I feed, you know, into something that I know I can mentally control, right? If I know that I've had dinner, but I now have a lot of pressure on me, my old habits would be to eat. See, most busy people that are heavy don't realize they're heavy because they're doing what we call busy eating. 
And then when they finally do get to the real meal, they've actually munched all day on unhealthy things. And then they go eat a thousand calorie meal because they feel like they haven't ate all day. Huh. And it be, it's that, that behavior probably shows up in their life somewhere else and it's expressed through their eating habits. So, whoa, just wait. I think you spoke to a lot of people just then explaining oh. a lot of people that I work with actually. Um, the busy eater often experiences themselves as I don't eat a lot. I don't like how did this happen? But what you just described in a way I couldn't see before was that all the other bits when you're busy is unconscious. So actually you weren't there. No wonder you don't remember it. You're not real. And your what happens is your stomach stops registering that as a meal or any form of food. And over time you have to do more of it because now you begin to make a connection that there's an emotional meaning behind the snacking. That's why people have favorite snacks. Think about it. A snack can be only become your favorite because you've invested the time into becoming your favorite. You can only invest your time in a snack if you're eating it often enough to do that. This is a, a weird example, but I just have to share this with you because I come from a, the French part of Canada, but I haven't lived there for a long time. And then I've just spent a year in Switzerland in French. And whenever I order from a French menu, I'm, I'm an English speaking person. I have no emotional connection with the menu in French. And it's so weird because I don't feel like anything feel because I'm eating it. Like, like it's like this memory. And, and it's so interesting what you just said, because even a favorite snack, like when you read the word in another language and I've, I had no attachment to it. I literally was like, Oh, I don't really I like don't it here. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's a good diet plan, I guess. Go to a country where you can't read the menu. But um, no, it's not. I'm being I'm being a bit silly. But 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 it's what you're talking about on a really yeah, it is though. It truly is. It's revealing, I guess. It's revealing yeah. attachments. Like I encourage people to go try that and see. I believe that you are describing the intensity of what a lot of us have around food. Meaning, mm-hmm. you're talking about addiction um, in, in a a really high state. Whereas I think there's an addiction for many people that we would, most people just wouldn't call it that. But it really is. If you, it is. That's right. when I, when, when, when I really get my people to do my, to write down everything they touch for three days and it's weird. Cause they'll say, what do you mean? Everything I touch. I said, no, everything you touch, anything that is, can be digested that you touch. Even if you don't eat it, you got to write it down. See, because what a lot of us don't realize is that we are actually, we have a cyclic behavior in the kitchen already. We go in, we open the refrigerator, close it back. We walk in the pantry, we walk out, we go sit down, right? We get up a few minutes later. We don't even realize we just did it. I watch my husband sometimes do it. It's so funny. But it's because we could have a connection that's different than just fueling the body. It's like we're going to visit. For me, visiting the refrigerator was visiting a friend. So how could anything in there be harmful if I see it as my friend? Because I'm around it so much. Yeah, wow. Oh, I think that that's really interesting what you're describing because 
what you're asking people to do is take unconsciousness, like things that you're just on autopilot, like that travel around the kitchen and making it conscious, like literally bringing it to the, your conscious attention. And when you did that, did you find, did it become easier to actually lose the weight? Because a lot of people I, I found begin on these journeys of releasing the weight, but they falter, you know, then they, they, the, the old patterns come back. What allowed you to keep moving forward through all, you know, you even say you're uninspired after 400 pounds, but I mean, here you are at 452 pounds lost. So you, you moved through 57. That. Actually you missed five pounds. Oh, I celebrate okay. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Like your bio had to get updated because of the continued growth and movement you're making. So, you know, that's 205 plus kilos guys. So what is it, Kenya, that allows you to keep going? Um, for me, it's an innate desire to ever fail again that way. Like what, what I try to get people to understand about my story, about my journey, about my walk and, I reference it in the back of my book when I talk about those three steps. The one where you do the videotape is for a reason. To this day, I have a video that's from my future self that speaks to me. I, I, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. You should never go there alone. And when you believe that without doubt, without hesitation, you are easily recognized, you're able, first of all, self-development. Let's go there first and foremost. You have got to want to invest in your mindset. But the key to any weight loss journey, the key to any change, the key to any, to breaking a habit that you no, long, no longer want to have in your life is engaging your mind. And the biggest thing I discovered about my about what I was doing to my body and how I was treating the pain, how I was taking things that had happened outside of me and internalizing them. And then those things showed up in my weight. Point one, my 592 pounds were simply an expression of the brokenness that lied within my heart. Because when you take all away all the weight, you take away all the pain because it was through releasing that weight that I had to deal with the pain because every level of weight loss re revealed a new person that I didn't know who she was, that someone had hurt, harmed, or done something to, and she had to be loved again. Mm -hmm. The reason why I can keep going is because I'm constantly loving, constantly loving the new me every day because the yesterday me doesn't matter unless she's counting to move me forward the day of. Because there's nothing I can do about yesterday, but today, but today I can make better food choices. I can drink more water. <clears throat> if I'm struggling, I can actually suck it up, drop the pride and call somebody and say help, right? Third thing, I always ask for help. The biggest mistake we can make in this world is think our pride was meant to serve us in the time of need. Being prideful because you're going through it, it's foolish. We were actually made to hurt so that others could help us heal. That's why I say it takes a village to heal. Because there's no one pain that you endure that doesn't require another soul to heal from. 
to speak life into you, speak belief into to you, to do your laundry when you can't get out of the bed, to um, take care of your kids. It's someone that it requires. It's required for someone else to feed into you from for you to grow through pain. Think about it. It is when that person is missing or they come defunct that we seek something else, and over time that something else shows up better. It shows up more often, right? I can go to any gas station, any store. I don't need to look for a person because when I'm stressed out, I can go get a hamburger. And I know the hamburger is going to do me right. Do you understand? So I say consistent because I, more than anything, think when we believe we are a possibility to thrive. <laughs> when we find the switch and cut it on and tape it on, right? Tape it on permanently. And then say, just because this light is taped on, I may fall down still, but I'm still going to keep climbing. Every time I fall off the side of this mountain, the next time I get up, I'm going to get up better. I'm going to make you see me more the next time I get up. You have to fight for you like that. And I always, since someone, it, it was at 400 and maybe 21 pounds, I said, I don't feel anything like I was like I don't I actually didn't have a connection to the weight I had lost I had just done a thing I had just listened to what somebody told me would work <laughs> that would give me more energy to go die and that I just kept using it because I kept getting the energy I didn't even know what I was using for like two years I just knew it worked right and because I don't believe life should be complicated, as I've always been. Remember, I told you I was a solution person. I didn't even care because I felt better. And then I got selfish. Like, I feel good. I ain't worried about nobody else not feeling good, honey. I didn't even want to share the product. I didn't even care. I was like, no, I'm good on my own, honey. I done lost 364 pounds. I ain't sharing nothing with nobody. They better get in where they fit in. But really, the reality to it was I didn't feel like it, I was worth sharing that with anyone. But because she shared that gift with me, I stood firm in knowing that it was something special because what was happening on the inside. I started recognizing people that were abusive and demeaning to me. Um, I stopped wanting to be in emotional pain all the time. Like I can remember feeling good and being like, something's not right. I had gotten so used to hurting emotionally that I was addicted to the adrenaline that came with being in pain from being, from being emotionally neglected. I felt abandoned and lonely and broken and I thrived off that and made it look like success in the form of a whole bunch of degrees and a whole bunch of certificates and saving a whole lot of people and then buying a whole lot of things. But none of it meant anything on my deathbed, on that day. None of those pretend things even mattered. It was me in pain. That's who showed up on my deathbed. Had I not said yes to wanting more energy, I'd be dead. So for me, I can't stop because be, beyond stopping is death for me. I need can, the nutrition. Can you remind people what you say to yourself to humble yourself every day about that? Because I know you've, you said with, with all that's been going on, with all the possibility, you remind yourself and humble yourself. What is it that you remind yourself with? That I could be dead. Like, I, 
I literally could be dead. Like people don't realize that I was given 30 days. That's like how you get your mortgage, you know, like, what do you guys call it there? Your, your mortgage. mortgage? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's due every 30 days. So imagine that being your deadline to life, your deadline to existence because of choices you made when you felt helpless. Like people telling you, you're, no one else can help you. You're not helpable. Like there's nothing medically on the planet that can help you. Like that's the words they used. And so I said, okay, well, I'm just going to die with a full stomach then. And then Trisha came along. So had she not come along, I would have eaten myself to death. That's the truth. That's the reality. Yeah. Well, we, we need to follow on and have Trisha on for sure, because she's an incredible human, a real yeah. angel. Um, and here's what, here's what I'm feeling for sure about you is that there's something that comes out of you that's bigger than you. And I love that you call like, it's not your mantra. I don't even know if it's a business name, but you, you, you call it, I rise. Yeah. And there's <laughs> it's like, my business. It's yeah. The name business of my business. Name. Okay. So there's this element of just literally, I feel the rising of you within this, moment and and i have a lot of other questions but in a way i don't because i want people to experience everything that's happened and how you rose and and that you're demonstrating to me and everybody else what's possible thank you and yeah and (laughs) maybe you know that little girl that wanted to help people and wanted to solution things here she is solutioning things for people and really helping is so beautiful. I truly believe that. Um, so remember I told you, you said, did you have a dream? My dream was to be a doctor. And how amazing is it to know that I am a doctor? I have a PhD in life and survival. I have a PhD in transforming your life and being able to maintain it. A PhD baby takes five years. I have a PhD in weight loss. And so I am a doctor. I'm a doctor in figuring out that we are all individuals and that when we are willing to bend to go the course, when we just are simply willing to be and see, I think that what happened to me, those four years that I laid in palliative care, fighting for my life in that hospital, one, one long-term care to another, paralyzed from the waist down, feeding tubes, all that stuff. I believe it was me being bent for the course. Because who I was then could not show up for people like I do today. Who I was then wasn't capable of loving that large, that loud, authentically, because there was too much pain blocking the gates of love to flood open. And so to stand in a state and stay humble, because humbleness must be the key, because you can never, ever forget that you are one decision away from being there again. Right. So I maintain that humbleness and then I share. Then I share that love in every form. It's not always about the nutritional cleansing. Sometimes it's just loving a person in that state out loud in the community and the public that you don't know. Say hello, beautiful. I hope you have an amazing day. You are a phenomenal person and I hope you believe that. 
because that's what we were created for and that's how we were created. And I believe that to the essence of my core that we, there were no junks created and that life determines how we are shaped and that any shape that we're molded into, we have the ability to unmold it. Beautiful. None of us are permanently broken. I love that. And Madam DOC, I just want to <laughs> leave it. I want to leave it there because they say the statue of David was molded by chipping away all the pieces until David appeared. And so I feel like we're in the presence of, of something truly beautiful. I would love to have you on again. I know your, your next book is in the creating phase. Um, <sighs> I'd love to, to talk to you again, if you're open to it. I, I feel really grateful. We sat next to each other in a room <laughs> of tens of thousands of people. And so I, I feel I was directed to you. And so thank you so much for, for you're being so here to me. It's beautiful. You're so welcome. I, I, you know, I, I, I just, I, every day I wake up, I want to show up more authentic, more authentic than the day before. I, I want to lay down and not have a thought in my mind of a shoulda, coulda, woulda, because I believe that, you know, in my book, I've died before. And I remember when I came back and they took me off the ventilator, they were asking me about a light. And I said, I hate to disappoint you, but I, I didn't see a light. And um, I smiled and said, but I know I'm a good person. And my friend looked over at me and she said, because the brightest ones, they light the way. And that's exactly what it was. It wasn't dark, but I didn't see the light coming at me, you know. And I remember laying there and getting better and getting stronger and just keep trying to remember, did I see something? And then I finally said to myself, it wasn't meant for you to have any other experience than what you had. Now, how do you grow from this? Um, and shortly after that, um, Trisha came. So. Wow. Wow. Oh, from the other side to here. Much love, my friend. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five star review, five stars, five stars, five stars, and then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.